Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Exvoyant, the one-on-one platform that's transforming how market-leading sales organizations use Salesforce around the world. Move past the call reports, pipeline reports, and forecasts, and stop using Salesforce just as a system of record. Let the Exvoyant team show you how to use Salesforce as a system of impact, improvement, and performance by creating one-on-ones that ignite and inspire. If you don't have a plan on how you can help every single rep on your team improve by at least 10%, Exvoyant can help you grow faster than you ever thought possible. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today we are joined by Doug Landis, growth partner at Emergence Capital. Doug is a sales leader at heart. Doug's helped build sales organizations at some of the most iconic companies in the world. Companies like Oracle, Salesforce, Google, and most recently, he was chief storyteller at Box. Emergence Capital is a top-tier early-stage venture capital company focusing on B2B SaaS companies. Doug works closely with the sales leaders in the emergence portfolio to make sure that not only do they get into high growth mode, but they stay there. Speaking personally, Doug is my go-to resource whenever I have a sales question, and I love this dude and refer to him as my ambassador of Quan. Today, Doug's going to share what he sees the great sales leaders do to stay in high growth mode, different than the average ones or the ones that never even get to high growth mode. Doug. I am so excited to have you here. Welcome to our show, and thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rob. <laughs> what a great intro. And by the way, for those of you that don't know what movie The Ambassador of Quan actually comes from, just go watch Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire, baby. You are my ambassador. <laughs> we are in for a treat. Uh, Doug, you are – I've told this to many people. I'm not the first to say this. You are as good as anybody I've ever met in helping build uh, a sales engine that hums, man. So it's predictable, it's sustainable, and that everybody that's in the org has a good understanding of, you know, why we win when we win and how we tune things up when they don't. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, it is my pleasure, and it is, uh, you know, I think the world of the world of sales is is in my blood, it's in my DNA, um, but it's it's a never ending uh, journey to try and get better. So no matter how good you are, there's always an opportunity to get better. Yeah, and I think that sets us up to start what we're going to talk about. And, you know, I, I think it's a really good way to start this thing for people that, uh, you know, may not know you as well as, as I do. Can you introduce a little bit about emergence, kind of the high level, but maybe more important, your story and how did you end up like one of the great sales leaders that I've ever met? How do you end up at a venture capital firm? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question and one that I get often. In fact, in many cases, probably at least once a week, I get the question of how did you end up at a, as a venture capitalist and how do I do that? How do yeah. I follow in the same footsteps? And I tell you what, man, a large part of, of my entire career, uh, I've been very lucky. And now, but I'm a big believer that you create your own luck. Um, and so you set yourself up for the things that you want to do in the future, um, every step of the way, whether that's, you know, if you're, if you're getting started, I just got off the phone with my mentee who's looking to become a sales ops leader. And I was like, okay, cool. In order, in order to be a great sales ops leader, go sit in the seat and do every role of all the teams that you're going to support SDR, BDR, commercial AE, you know, strategic AE, sit with them and, and do whatever it takes to understand, truly understand what that role is all about. Um, because that's how you set yourself up for success. Anyway, let's talk about uh, Emergence Capital and how I got here for a sec. So Emergence, as you mentioned, is a, a tier one uh, early stage venture capital firm. We invest in early stage B2B enterprise SaaS companies. But what's really interesting, and I've actually been here for almost two years, my, my two year anniversary is coming up in just a few weeks. What's interesting is at the end of the day, fundamentally because we do series A and series B stage investments, we're in the people business. And if you actually think about it, one of our, you know, like our mission is we invest in people who are changing the future of work Hmm. because, you know, your product as a series A company may pivot, you may change, 
you may face new factors in the market that actually force you to, to alter how you thought you were going to go to market. And, and it's the people that drive those changes. It's the people that create the culture that gets everybody to follow them uh, when, it, when, you know, when the road gets a little bumpy. And to your point, you know, fundamentally, my job here at Emergence as a growth partner is, is kind of threefold. Um, I sit on the Emergence uh, investment team. So I help to source deals and do due diligence on deals. And, and I get involved in the early stages before we actually decide to fund a company. But once then we fund a company and invest in, in, in a portfolio, um, then I step in and help them figure out how they're going to scale and grow. How are they going to grow from a million to five to 10 to 50 to 100, whatever their, their exit may be? Um, we don't necessarily see that as a quote unquote exit. We believe in, in winning in the long run. We know it's a long haul to get to become a multi-billion dollar software company. And that's what we're in the business of doing is investing in, in people that want to build multi-billion dollar software companies. And so interestingly, um, you know, my, my kind of skill set of helping to build sales organizations and being a part of that process in the early days, whether it was at Oracle, whether it was, you know, Oracle way back in the day. Um, you know, where, you know, funny enough, a little side note here, and, and Aaron Ross, this is no dig to you, but the truth is, is Aaron Ross likes to claim that he's the one, he's the creator of this revenue engine, right? But the reality is it actually started at Oracle way back in the day. And I was there in the mid nineties and we had this machine. We had SDRs, we had BDRs, we had a commercial sales team, we had a major sales team, we had an enterprise sellers and we built that machine there. And then when Mark left, he took that with him to Salesforce and copied it. Now it's the model for, for almost every single fast growing SaaS company, right? It's like, yeah. how do you make that repeatable motion to where the handoff is simple because I'll tell you as a full, creating a full stack AE, meaning where you've got to go basically eat what you kill, right? Yep. You're hefting, yep. you're closing. It's, it's hard and it's costly. And so, you know, the model basically proved that there is a, faster and more efficient and more cost-effective way to actually get customers and prospects into into a conversation with us with a you know with you as a company and um that's where it all started so i was, I was super fortunate to be a part of the building process of these pretty iconic companies and so as a result you know i've seen the pattern and when you're a venture capitalist you're in the business of pattern recognition like yeah. you're looking for the right leadership the right market do they have the right go-to-market strategy do they have the right you know, are they defensible from anybody else coming after them in the market? And, and so you're looking for the patterns. And so what I bring to the table is the, the pattern recognition on the go to market side. Yeah. Right. I, you know, like almost every company in the early stage struggles with the same thing, especially if you've got a product leader as the founder and, you know, they're very product to mind, you know, they've got a very product mindset and they're maybe an engineering mindset and they're looking at the go to market side of the business going, well, just go hire a bunch of AE. It's like, well, wait a minute. Find out. <laughs> if only it were that simple, like, right? <laughs> that's not necessarily how you solve the world's greatest problem. You know, on the go-to-market side, just, don't just go throw a bunch of bodies at it, right? Yeah. And and you know, and it's like, hey, by the way, did you know it's going to take you nine months to hire a great marketing leader? And they're like, wait, what the hell? That doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> it's it's a it's a perfect perfect transition to go from this operating side of you know helping these companies build to the venture side, because at the end of the day, I'm doing, in many ways, a lot of what I was doing before. Before I'm just doing it across multiple companies. So you have this super unique opportunity now to take, because again, I love that you set it up. Great setup, Doug. You have seen the birth of modern sales, not as someone on the sideline. You had the ball in your hands at a number of different iconic companies developing the way modern sales is done. I think you have this super unique perspective, but now it's further honed because you're not just at your current gig, you're working with, in what Emergence's uh, opinion is, some of the most high promise growth companies in the world, helping them become what you said, not just 50, 150, 200 million dollar companies. You're in the business of creating billion dollar iconic organizations. Absolutely, absolutely. And by the way, it doesn't matter how successful a company is or is looking like they're going to become in the early days, they'll still struggle with the same stuff. They, you know, they will. Like, I mean, it's just everybody, because everyone's always looking at fine tuning the machine. And oh, by the way, what you struggle with when you're, you know, a hundred million dollars in revenue is, you know, it's, it's still a struggle, right? You may not, you don't, you don't, you're not going to struggle with that. You're not going to have the same struggles when you're a million in revenue, but you still have issues that you're trying to refine. 
There's, there's no one is impervious to it. Yeah, so that's why so that's why I wanted you on the show. I mean, the, the, the premise of this show is we bring in high growth sales leaders and we share the tactics that work. And every now yep. and then, you know, we're in our mid twenties of episodes. You know, after ten, we brought in a guy that works with some of the high high growth lead, uh, teams like John Barrows, and he shared what he saw the good ones do that the average don't. You're the, we're bringing you in to have that kind of a conversation today. What do you see the great orgs get right that the other ones just never seem to unlock and figure out? Yeah. And so let's start with that. What's up the top of mind? You know, as you think of high growth sales leaders that do it right, right? Some things. What do so, you see them do? So I, you know, it's really interesting. Is well, first I'm gonna I'm gonna totally blow everybody's mind and and kind of shatter the, the glass of, of what it what it means to build a high growth go to market function. Um, and then I'm going to get into some of the things that I see most specifically on the sales side. But what's really interesting is we I say this all the time, you know, you're a series A company, you're a startup. The first thing that you should do is go out and hire customer success folks. Don't hire salespeople, hire customer success. Think like what? That's so that's so opposite of what I considered. But you as the founder and CEO, you're the first seller. You're like Rob, it's what you do at Exmoit. You're out there pound the pounding the streets selling your product yes, and you're sir. winning those early stage customers. And so guess what? You need somebody and or a team of people there that's going to make them wildly successful, wildly successful, because then you can use them to help reference sell. You can use them to help learn about how to position your product, how to retool your message, what value they're really getting out of the product. Then you want to go out and hire a head of marketing because guess what? You need to build a machine. You need to build people who are raising their hands saying, hey, I'm interested. I want to learn more. I want to have a conversation with you. And then you need to go out and hire salespeople. People have a tendency of getting that backwards. But what's interesting is once you, go, once you build that machine and now you're starting to build, you know, hire salespeople, the next thing you have to think about is what's my support ecosystem around them? How mm. do we make these early stage sellers really successful? And, and again, you can't just leave them out on their own. Because, they're, because the expectations are going to be totally skewed and it's going to get really messy really fast. So hire somebody to run sales operations earlier than you may consider. Like, I'm serious. You got, you've got five people on the sales team. Go hire a sales ops person because you're going to screw up Salesforce if you don't. <laughs> All right? You, you totally are. You know, Is that a common mistake? Oh, super common. You know, and everyone talks about it. It's like, oh, bad data in, bad data out, or garbage in, garbage out. I get it, right? But once you start to think, you realize, like, hey, we're going to have to start to institute territories pretty soon. Hey, we're going to have to start to int- introduce better process to handle, you know, conversions from the marketing team to the sales team. When do we introduce SDRs? When do we start thinking about going outbound? All these things you got to think about way earlier than you actually can anticipate. And what I typically see a lot of companies struggle with is process. And how do I introduce and institute process? And how do we f- refine it? Because in the early days, you're just hypothesizing, right? You're just testing. You're doing A-B testing. You're trying to get your pricing right. And you're trying to figure out, like, what's my sweet spot in terms of my customers? As you're doing that, you need to start to operationalize those things and institutionalize those things inside of your sales force. And one of the things that I do, probably the three most common projects that I work on with our early stage companies. One we dig into their ICP and who's your ideal customer profile? How do we know? How can you prove it? Because getting in the Bay Area, getting to your first million or two million in revenue is actually fairly easy. Because because if you're like my buddy Pete Kazanji, sorry Pete, but like he literally <laughs> has stole every all of his customers are within walking distance of his office. Like that's not really fair, right? <laughs> you get, when you get Procter and Gamble as a customer and they're willing to like get up on stage and talk about you, now you know you're you're like you're you're in it. To win it, right? Okay. Because now you're you've gotten out of like your 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 you know your your comfort zone of your your friends and family that's around you. Yeah. Um. So so at nailing that ICP. The next thing is is messaging and positioning. Everybody gets it wrong. You know, as a chief storyteller at Box, is a role that I created for myself. But it's you know, look, even Box is struggling with this, which is how do we actually start to infuse the voice of our customers into articulating who we are and what we do. Right. It's not it's not what we do for you internally. We're going to make you more efficient, make you more productive, whatever that means. It's like, no, what are we doing for your relationship with your customers? How are we making your customers like you more? It's what Salesforce does incredibly well. So it's like nailing messaging and positioning. And then the third thing is, and, and you'll you'll appreciate this, but it's institutionalizing uh, uh, process, i.e. a playbook. 
Okay, so I want to I want to hit that, but I'm not going to let you go by number two as fast as you want to. <laughs> Sorry, dude. I love you, and you are my guy. But this is my show right now, and I'm going to push pause because that was too good. Okay, that messaging and positioning. You made a statement that I wrote down that I think every single like thousands of people are going to listen. They're going to listen to your episode. Uh, we've this episode. This podcast has grown because sales leaders want to hear stuff like this, Doug. And ICP. I'm glad you started with that. I get it, but the how do we have the voice of the customer infused into what we do? That's a really awesome thing for you to say. That's the first thing to get right. Yep. Can you give a it's couple easy. of best practices on how these companies say, I want to do that? How do totally. you help people do that? Totally. It's super easy. First thing to do is go talk to your customers and listen to what they say and then use their language. Mm. Right. Far too often we try and use our own language because it's the marketing hat that we wear. Like, yes. oh, here's what we do and here's how we do it. Right. And we focus too much on the what we do and how we do it. And we don't focus enough on the why we do what we do. Right. And so yes. and so the reason why I said go hire customer success folks is because guess what? They're the ones that are going to get those little juicy nuggets out of your customers and really, truly identify the value that you deliver to your customers. Because in many cases, what you'll find is it's actually different than what you thought originally, right? Oh, we're going to yeah. help you, you know, we're going to help you streamline X. We're going to help you do Y. Well, guess what? Do you really do that or do you do something else? Because at the end of the day, in order to be effective in selling, you need to bring something of value to your prospect. No, long gone are the days of like, oh, hey, I want to just spend five minutes and do some discovery. No, 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 no. People yeah. don't have time for that. Yeah. I don't have time for that. You, if you want to have time, if you want to have a conversation with me, bring something to the table that can help me learn. Right? That's what every one of our customers and prospects is expecting from you as sellers. And so you can do that by, by gathering these little nuggets of insight from your customers and then using that in your talk track. So it's it's no longer you, the seller. It's, hey, this is what my customers told me. This isn't me saying this. This is what they continue to share with me over and over again. Oh, by the way, this is what we've learned from our customers over the last six months, over the last year, however long you've been in business. And now you're using that their their voice, and that's a lot harder for somebody to actually object against. Yeah, like, well, that's not me saying it. It's like what they said. You know, what do you what do you think about that? Right. And now you can Fantastic. get a very different dialogue because now you're you're drawing that comparison. Well, thank you for letting me push pause because I think that you know, best practice, that clarification. I think that's a big deal. And you're right. It's something that's simple to do, whether you are that big giant Procter and Gamble or you're the brand new company that's just trying to get into high growth mode. It's something that you can, you can do pretty quickly. And I got to think with very low cost. A hundred percent. But here's the thing. It's something that is constant. You have to constantly be evaluating, you know, whose voice am I actually using? Cause here's, here's the challenge. Like if Bob, mm. you've got Aaron Levy, that's incredibly prolific, leader who is such he's he's he thinks at a whole nother level and when he talks people will listen to him and he's got the he's got the credibility to actually talk about box and the entire market and and the staff as a whole but as a salesperson i don't have i don't have any credibility i have sales in my title right so my job <laughs> is to actually earn credibility and build up my credibility you know kind of bank how do i do that well i use my customers to earn that credibility and to build that level of credibility. If I, you know, if I'm, if I'm out talking to the CIO of Semantic, if I'm out talking to the CIO of Cisco, wouldn't it be interesting if I said, Hey, you know, the CIO, I was just chatting with the CIO of Semantic the other day and here's what she told me are three things she's most concerned about. And I thought it was really interesting, especially given the fact that you guys are both in the, in the security space. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Not mine. It's I'm saying what she shared with me and I'm sharing it with you. So that takeaway, whose voice am I actually using? That should be a litmus test every single sales leader is super, super concerned about. Amen. Love it. Let's get to playbooks. I, I, I push pause. Now I'm being, it's, <laughs> we're back to Wayne's world. Game on. Okay. Game back on. Uh, I, I, I don't want to stop you because I think this playbooks topic, you are uniquely qualified to speak to this in ways most people can't. And I cannot wait to dig into this one with you. <laughs> well. I think it's mostly because I've built like a hundred of them, it seems like. Um, and the reality is this, when I say playbooks, so many people get caught up in this idea of methodology. We need to go build a methodology. We need to go get a methodology. We need Finn. We need, we need Miller Hyman. We need, you know, we need whatever it is. There's so many methodologies out there. Challengers that we want to institute challenger methodology into our, into our company. It's like, 
don't. Because a method, what does that mean? A methodology is your method for moving a prospect through, you know, kind of the process, if you will. Um, I'm sorry, but by the way, those are all very self-serving because that's not actually how your customers are buying from you. That's actually how you're forcing your customers to buy from you. What I would rather say is like, what is the process to ensure that we're actually um, further driving our conversation forward? Right. If you think about it, it's a core. Selling is just a series of conversations. I'm having a conversation with you to determine if it makes sense for us to have another conversation. Right. So there are certain things in this conversation that I want to share with you to help you better understand how I think I can add value to to our relationship, our partnership. It may not be today. It may be in maybe tomorrow, maybe in six months, maybe in six years. It doesn't really matter. What I want to do is I want to start to I want to kind of refine and hone in on that process of what are the signals and indicators that I'm looking for from you that say, okay, you're interested in continuing this conversation. And as a result, what do I need to be sharing with you to help educate you or even challenge you in your thinking about what problems that you're trying to solve today, right? To me, that's a process, right? And the truth is, it's like a methodology basically says, we'll follow our process. It's like, okay, cool. I get that, but every company is unique. And so I prefer using a playbook instead of a methodology. Because the playbook is going to be way more specifically targeted and tailored to you and your customers. That's the important piece. So Make let's sure pause on that again, Doug. I, I, you're really going, and I, and I don't want to stop you because we are fortunate <laughs> to have you. But I, I think this is a great place to push pause again. You know, everybody talks about process, and I think there's so many different definitions of what process is. And I love how you said playbooks are not equal to methodology. I would also say process is not equal to methodology. Um, because of what you said, too many times process is what a salesperson thinks. I do this, I do this, I do this, and then I should win. And I think it leaves out that whole, how do you actually engage the buyer? I do this, so the buyer will do this, yes. and then we can mutually move forward. Do you, do you see that happening as a problem? Am I, am I off on that one? What are your thoughts around that? No, no, it's, it's, it's really true. And I think you know people talk a lot about the buyer journey. Um, it's really difficult to map out what the buyer journey really is because everybody buys a little differently. And oh, by the way, let's just not be singular in that definition of buyer journey because every deal over $10,000 requires about six people involved in making a buying decision. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Five to six people, right? So that means the one person that you're speaking to, there are four or five other people behind them that are involved in this decision that they're going on their own journey. So how do you get consensus? How do you get everybody all on the same page at the same time? And that's really where marketing can certainly help and step in, right, to help educate other people who might not be engaged. It's why, as a sales leader, I want my BDRs or my SDRs that I'm partnered with to be calling the other people to try and educate them and get them at least thinking so they can try and get some consensus. But at the end of the day, it's really making sure that we're clear about the signals that we're looking for from our buyers that say, hey, these guys are indicating that they're interested and they want to learn more and they want to continue to engage. And it's being really clear about what those signals are. We pay a ton of attention of the things that I should do as a rep. Yes, I need to, you know, make sure I do a custom demo. Yes, I need to make sure that there's a problem that they have, that they are willing to put money behind. Yes, I need to make sure that there's budget. Yes, I need to understand what their buying decision is, you know, who's involved in that buying decision. I get it. All that is for me, selfishly speaking. But the reality is, is a great process actually has you focus more on them and what their process is. And, and, you know, in some cases in the early days, you're kind of guessing, yep, right? Because maybe the CEO landed up like, you know, your founder CEO landed 10 huge customers purely based on their relationship. Totally possible. That doesn't really give you a whole bunch of visibility into what a real process on the buyer side actually looks like. So you're going to have to do some digging and you're going to have to make some guesses. And you're going to test a whole bunch, right? It's like, what's my expectation? If I do a discovery call with you and we recognize the fact that there's a problem that you might be interested in solving, maybe there's not enough urgency to that problem. That's fine. That's part of my, my job is to help develop that urgency. But what, then what next? So you said, okay, this looks interesting. Now what? Yeah. You right? know what I, I can list out the 50 things that I could do, but what are you going to do on your end? This is so good, Doug. Uh, you know, when I had I had the head of sales for Lucid Chart on a couple of weeks ago, I, I think you know Dan Cook, 
and um, he he called it guess and check. He said early on, man, you're playing <laughs> guess and check, guess yeah. and check is, but don't just keep guessing. Make sure you keep checking. And I thought totally. that was good. I thought that was great advice. And you're you're supporting that, saying the same thing that the younger you are, the more you're testing, and you do have to get to the point where you're not guessing. You know. How long does that take? Is it different for every company? I mean, you're right because as as a as a founder of a company, uh, I, I was able to go out and get a lot of really important deals. But getting it with people who had never heard of us before was a completely different process, no doubt right. about it. How, right. any, any best practices there? Well, so I'd say this: like most early stage companies, um, they're not capitalizing on the information that they're gathering from those early customers. And so, yes, I believe guess and check is something you continuously do. You never stop doing it. Because what happens is, is you get you get comfortable, right? And then you stop checking. You start making a ton of assumptions or you start getting arrogant. Like, ah, everybody wants to buy from us. So guess what? You're going to buy from us the way I tell you to buy from us versus no, no, no. This is the way we've, this is the way we've, what we've learned from our customers. One of the things I tell our early stage customers a lot is you need to educate your customers on how to buy from you. Because a lot of times it's new technology. They're like, well, what is this? This sounds great. Uh, I kind of kind of get the value, but what, what do I do with this? Yeah. We make a ton of assumptions that they know how to buy this stuff from us. And so in that process of educating them on how to buy from us, we're educating them on what our other, uh, other customers just like them have actually done and what their process was. So that's a way to test and validate whether or not your checking is actually in line with where they're at. Right, you educate them based on what you've learned before, what you've done with other customers, what typically happens, and that's how you start to formulate and build your first playbook, because it's because you've got that you've got those details. As an example, if you're just selling to enterprises, just say you 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 know, let's say you're fortunate enough that you're coming out your Series A, you're just selling to enterprises, Fortune 2000. Cool. Guess what? I'm willing to bet that there's a step in there where the enterprise has got to engage legal. In order to get this deal done, we've got to get legal on our side. I'm, let's say I'm the buyer. You're trying to sell to me. I yep. need legal involved in order to review this contract. Cool. Guess what? That likely takes 60 days. Likely. So likely, yeah. If that's, yeah, if not longer, right? Yeah, no doubt. So, so, so as part of this playbook, one of the steps that I need to make sure that I take that's in my play, maybe even when the deal's at stage three, is engage legal. And, and me as the buyer, I might not even know that I have to get legal involved 60 days or 90 days out because I've never bought something like this before. And so you as the seller, I need you to help me understand that that's an important step in this process. Can I ask you a question about that then? Here's, here's my question. I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to freaking ask you, dude. Cause yeah. <laughs> so Fire away. Here, here's my question. So how, so, so you see these sales organizations that they're realizing, you know, shit, I got to get legal involved way earlier than I thought if I'm going to have the cycle time be where I want. Um, do, do customers like having salespeople that can inform them in a way so they you're helping them buy rather than putting pressure on them to buy? You know, do they like that? And what's the nuances? I got to imagine it's a fine line between being helpful and being, you know, uh, a pain in the ass. Yeah, or, or being arrogant. Yeah. Right. So because, do they like it? And how do you do that if they do? Yeah. So, well, so it, if they've never bought something like this before, then they absolutely like it because they need to understand. And and guess what? You're the expert. Teach me. Right. You know, right. I'm the, I'm the neophyte, even though I've been in this business for, you know, 30 years, you know, and some people may, may, may take it as like, don't tell me how to do my job. And so it is, there is a, an art, right? So many people talk about sales being in both art and science because yes, there's pure math to it. And like, I need to make a hundred calls in order to get eight, eight meetings in order to get two ops. Cool. Done. Math, right? But there is the art to how do I teach somebody that's been, you know, in business and been doing this for 30 years, how to actually buy something like this. That's, and, 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 and it seems like it's so simple, but it's actually really difficult. And, and again, part of it is using the voice of your customers. They listen, you know, the last five companies or, Hey, you know, when I was working with semantic, one of the things that we, 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 one of the things that we ran into pretty early on was that legal needed to make sure that these, you know, checks and balances were in place. And so the likelihood of us having to go down that path seems pretty common. It seems like it's, it's, it seems like we're going to have to face something very similar than we faced in Symantec. Mm. What do you think? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, if you're not sure, that's no big deal. I tell you what, why don't we get legal involved now ahead of time? Because the last thing we want to do is be faced at the, you know, at the, at the finish line and then now have to overcome this legal hurdle because that's just going to push everyone back and it's just going to become a giant pain in the butt for you and me. Love it. Right now I'm, I'm using what an experience that I had in another customer or, uh, or the last 10 deals that I've done. Here's what was pretty common in that process. What do you think? Let's map out yours and let's, let's, let's go from there. So Doug, you've talked about playbooks in your way for basically saying these are the things we do to help someone choose to buy and learn from us and feel comfortable. There's all these things that a good playbook will do that I want to finish with. What are some key things that a great playbook should include? Are, are there any kind of non-negotiables you want your playbook to include X? Yeah. So there, there, I, I built a model for this. We built this in box and um, there are five components to it. I want to break down the five components and then, and then I want to highlight some really, really critical uh, elements, right? Yep. Um, so the first component is the, the idea is we're trying to, the idea behind a playbook is you're trying to create consistency of language so that when I say a deal is at stage three, you know exactly what that means and we're all on the same page. Our sales engineer, CSMs, everybody knows what a deal means at stage three, right? We also want to know what, um, so I also fundamentally want to know what is the strategy for that stage? So part of what you're doing is the first thing you do is you define that stage. So what does stage three actually mean? And then what is our strategy for this stage, right? What are we ultimately trying to do? Are we trying to qualify in, qualify out? We're trying to make sure that we have, you know, all of our ducks in a row. We're trying to make sure that we've got, you know, we've got all the players involved, right? Whatever, what that strategy, what is that strategy? Yep. And what sales skills should I be honing in in that stage? Because guess what? The skills that I need for discovery are very different than the skills mm-hmm. that I need for negotiating or validating, you know, validating uh, uh, my solution with power, whatever that stage may be, right? The next thing I want to do is I want to map out what are all the milestones? So we'll call this like entrance and exit criteria. What are the things that need to happen in the stage in order for me to feel confident that I can move from this stage to the next stage? Yep. And then the last piece is what are all the tools associated with that can help for this associated with the stage that can help me through the stage? It could be, you know, my discovery checklist. It could be battle cards for our competitors. It could be, you know, care sheets about the industry. It could be, you know, customer stories that I can use at this stage, right? So what are, that's the framework. So what's the definition, strategy, sales skills, milestones, and tools? Tools, resources. So which is the hardest one to get right? I'm looking at all five of those. Those are all awesome. It's <laughs> a killer playbook. Like what I'm going to, I'll tell you, this is something that I'm pausing on this so everybody can be writing these five things down. Uh, and I guarantee you in my so what at the end, I'll be hitting these five things. Which one? They're all badass. I mean, do you have to get all of them right? Which one? Which is the hardest to get yeah. right? Any thoughts? You've built so many of them. Yeah. So, so the thing is, is, is it the hard, one of the hardest things is just getting agreement from everybody from sales leadership all the way on down that this is how, what it's going to look and feel like. That's, that's rather difficult just because you're trying to herd cats. The second thing that's really difficult is making sure that you've got the entrance and exit criteria clearly defined by stage. And so one of the things you're going to have to do is go, okay, well, so if I'm having a discovery conversation in stage two, that's what I'm doing. And that's one of the milestones that I need to hit. What do I expect from our customer to indicate that, okay, it's time to move on. So, so those criteria, what, what are the verifiers from our customers that determine that, okay, we're good. I can now move on again. So it's not just all about the activities that I take, but what are the things that my customers doing that, that indicate like, okay, we're both on the same page. We're, we're time to move on. So Doug, I'm pushing right. pause again. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm pushing pause again. You hit on what but, I think is one of the biggest biggest, most common mistakes in the way I look at process is I see this exit criteria and verifiers is the most often missing piece is what I see. hundred percent. Can you give, so when I, whenever you be like this, that's why I'm glad you brought it up. I talk a lot about this. You've heard me talk a lot about this. I've heard you talk a lot about this. I often get questions from people. Can you give me an example of a verifier? Can you give me a way that, you know, how do I really collect verifiers from customers? People often are like puzzled by that one. Can you give a couple of examples? Yeah. And it, it, it that is one of the hardest things to get, right? Is what are our customers? What, what signals am I looking for from my customers that will indicate that it's time to move to the next stage? Right. So as an example, um, in discovery, 
one of the things I'm trying to determine is, is there a problem that they're willing to put money behind to solve now, right? So if I'm in the, my discovery phase, before I move from discovery to, you know, validating solution with power or whatever my next stage is, one of the things I need to make sure that my customer agrees to is that, yes, they have money allocated. If they don't have money allocated, then there's a way to actually go get budget. Because I don't want to go down this path knowing full well that we need, you know, this is, this is something that's net new to them, that they didn't actually already have budget assigned for. So what is that process? How are we going to go look for budget? Who do we need to get engaged? Is that it to me sim- is a verifier. Is it as simple as just asking that question? Um, in some cases. I mean, in some cases, it's like, cool. How do you pay for things like this? Not do you have budget? Right. Nobody has budget. I'm sorry. Nobody has budget. Unless you're replacing your CRM, no one has budget, (laughs) right? (laughs) So it's like, well, how do you typically pay for something like this? So who's involved in that process? The reason I asked that question is I wanted people to hear you ask that question. How do you, it's such a great way of doing that because you're right. It's not like this. Yes. No. Do you have a, okay. Check here. Yes. No. How do you, you figure out if they have budget. I mean, I, I love that. That's a great example. Totally. I, I love totally. it. Or, or hey, typically when we partner with our customers, we want to make sure that we've got alignment all the way to the very top, right? So because the more our execs, the more our bosses can be connected and aligned, the more you and I, champion that I'm speaking to, can actually get shit done, right? And so uh, one of the things that we like to do is actually – create that connection. How often do your executives want to get involved with your partners, your key, key constituents, if you will, that are going to help you drive your business? I love it. Interesting question, right? Again, I know executive alignment is something that needs to happen in order for us to move this deal forward. It's a standard issue. So how do I get them engaged? So I gotta, I gotta keep this move because we're actually, we're, we're going long because I knew it would because you and me are so passionate about this. I, <laughs> totally. I, I would have a three hour podcast on this. So you've given us your blueprint for five things. We've picked, I think the hardest one is, is verifiers. You've given them a little clarity on, on how you get verifiers. Here's what I think maybe the biggest part of playbooks is. And I, I want, I would be screwing up if we didn't talk about this. How do you operationalize it? So you've written this Ooh, playbook. Yeah. How do you get your team to use it? Hands down the single most difficult step. And the reason why all these other methodologies exist, right, is because they've built, like, you should look at Altify as an example. They've built a way to kind of operationalize their product or their process inside of Salesforce. Because that's the hard, hardest thing. You create this book. We did this box, 107 pages long, a playbook, physical book that you can fish through and read through. It's such full of great information. But if it's not right in front of a rep, they're not going to do it or they're not going to think to do it. Because guess what? We get, we get, we start to build habits, right? And we forget and maybe we get lazy. And so we miss a step. And it's like, oh shit, I forgot to get legal involved. And now we're only 30 <laughs> days out. And I've got this thing forecasted. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's going to screw me up, right? Whoops, big step. And so operationalizing your, your playbook is easily one of the most critical steps. And there are not a lot of ways to do it easily. There's not a lot of ways to make it seamless. Um, Outside of using Excellent, of course, but I don't want to make this a giant <laughs> nope. advertisement for Excellent. We're not doing that. We're not going there. <laughs> but, but it is certainly something that you can do within Excellent, and it's something that I totally appreciate about you. This is why you and I geek out about this stuff is because you've thought about this. But the reality is you have to think about as an organization, how, what fields do we need to update? How are we going to get this information in front of a rep so that they know that there are certain things that they should do? And so I've seen some companies lock down Salesforce where you can't actually move a deal forward in another stage unless you fill out these four fields. I don't love that because the world is selling is super dynamic. I could be in stage one and learn something about how you negotiate or how you, or how, you know, who's on your procurement team. Although guess what? I'm not doing that until stage four or stage five. So how do I enter that information in? So I'm not a big believer in locking down Salesforce. However, I am a big believer in modifying Salesforce such that it maps to the, the important steps that you need to take as a seller and the important steps that your buyers must take to indicate that this, this deal is still healthy and we're still on the same page. Mm-hmm. Whether you custom, whether you create custom fields in Salesforce, custom objects, whatever it may be, just be super cognizant about your rep workflow. I like that. Great advice. Um, we are, I'm so mad that I'm more time. You're going to be our first repeat guest, I think. 
Um, do it. I, I could see you being like, you know, the ambassador of Quan episode every 10 episodes or so. You know, <laughs> we talk about the greatest hits and get your take on them all. Um, you've given Love us the playbook. It. You've told us how to, you know, high level, how to operationalize it. There's a lot more to it, obviously. Um, I want to finish because we're, we're really, I can't believe we're up on 40 minutes already, if you can believe that. Um, there's two ways I finish every episode. The first one, I'm really interested to hear from you because I don't know how you're going to answer this one, and I cannot wait. I ask every leader, what was their biggest leadership challenge that they've, that they've been through and how do they handle it? For you, I'm going to ask you the same one, either one that you've personally been through or what have you watched maybe a sales leader you've worked with because you work with so many. Really important sales leadership challenge, and, and how was it dealt with? Can you share one? So I see this all the time, and I don't know if there's a – you know, the truth is there's not a silver bullet solution, so I'll just say this up front. But hiring is probably one of the most biggest – the single biggest challenges that any sales leader faces. How do I hire the right people for my organization today, but they're also going to be the right people for my organization next year and five years from now? Um, it's super, di- it's really, really difficult. And it's just like, just like as a founder CEO, hiring the right VP of sales at the right time can make or break your organization. Just like a VP of sales and hiring the right reps at the right time can make or break your organization. If you go out and you hire, you know, an enterprise AE from Salesforce, no offense, Salesforce, I love you guys, but enterprise at AE, AE at Salesforce, they're, guess what they're used to? Where are my opportunities? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, right. I want yeah. the, I want the, the Glenn Gary lead. Right. Because that's what I do. I go out and I take those leads and then I expand them into multi-million dollar deals because that's what I'm used to. So if you're an early stage company, maybe hiring a Salesforce AE who's expecting to be spoon fed isn't necessarily the right call. Hiring the right person at the right time at scale is incredibly difficult. Um, so there's a couple things you can do. One, um, I built out a, a sales hiring bottle that I, I will gladly share with your constituents, which is how do we actually interview for things beyond just salesmanship? How do you interview for emotional intelligence? How do you interview for coachability? How do you interview for work ethic? I've built a whole mo- a scoring mechanism around that. So if you want to hire salespeople at scale. The other thing is, and we're just releasing it um, this week, is how to actually hire a VP of sales. And wow. what, what superpowers should I be looking for if I'm an early stage company versus a later stage company? There's, like Getting hiring right is so critical because hiring, you know, look, people join companies, they leave managers, right? There's nothing worse when you've got a badass AE and you bring in a new sales leader and that AE's performance dips because all of a sudden the sales leader is, is you know, has, has really influenced and changed the culture of the sales organization. Yep. Right? I love it. So, so painful. So I'm going to I'm gonna take you up on that. Uh, we're going to make sure that we talk about how we, our, our people at once, you can get a hold of that, uh, that sales hiring model. In fact, that might be a good episode even by itself is how to <laughs> hire. You are are this knowledge source, dude. This, this is why I'm so appreciative that I have you as a, as a friend and a mentor to me, but I'm even more appreciative right now that you're sharing even just for a few minutes. Uh, this is pure gold for our listeners and and I'm super appreciative. I'm going to ask you the last question I ask everyone. Leaders very often are readers and, and maybe it's not always just reading a book, but great leaders are always trying to learn what's next and up their game. Is there anything that you would recommend? a person that either is a sales leader or aspires to be a sales leader should have in their library of things that they've read and and study? (laughs) Um, This is, yeah, I mean, there's a million sales books out there, but something that's most impactful for you. Yes. Well, look, one of the, one of the most impactful books I've ever read in my entire life is called the power of now. Because one of the things that we think about is like, we, we tend to worry too much about what happened and we tend to, and we, we tend to create too much anxiety about what might happen. And the reality is the only thing that really matters is what's going on right here, right now. And the more present you can be in those moments or in every moment in your life, the more actual impact that you can have on the people around you and the experiences that you can have in life. And actually, the more you will learn, especially from your customers or from your sales team or from your peers, the more present you can be, the more, the more fulfilling your life will become. No one has recommended that one yet. That's going to be an awesome one. We'll get that in our library uh, on the podcast website. Uh, Power of Now, I love that. Be in the present uh, rather than just focused on what's happening a year from now. That's fantastic. 
Doug, are, are there any final thoughts? I mean, we've taken a lot of time and, and a lot of your time, and I'm so appreciative. As you think about our conversation today on things you've seen, and you've really hit playbooks hard, and I appreciate it. The other, the other thing that stands out to me is that voice of the customer. Whose voice are we using? Any final thought you'd like to, to kind of wrap this episode up with to leave with our, our listeners that are going to be digging everything you've been saying? Um, gosh, final thought. Um. I would say constantly challenge yourself to take a step back and look holistically at what it is that you're trying to create. Um, it's super easy to get caught in the weeds and get wrapped up in the whatever project you're working on right here, right now. Uh, and, but the problem is, it's like, it's hard to see the forest through the trees, right? So make sure you take a moment at least once a week and take a step back and go, okay, what is it that I wanted to create this week? How did I do? What do I want to create next week? Um, what's it going to take? Love it. That's such good advice. Doug, you are the man. You're also so abundant. I've never seen you not actually show genuine interest when someone wants to reach out to you. That's one of the things I love about you. You don't big time anyone. You're like this abundant mentality, this abundant person that I really believe is truly committed to the craft of sales and maybe even more specifically sales leadership because I think sales leadership is not as far advanced as sales is, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And, and uh, so how do our listeners get more of you? How do they find you? How do they hear more of what you said? <laughs> you know, you said hey, you're yeah. about to release this, this uh, how to hire a VP of sales. How do they get more of you and what you're doing at Emergence? Totally. So um, definitely definitely go to, go to MCAP.com, click on thoughts. There's a bunch of great content in there, both on how to hire, basically on the go-to-market side. So my, we, we geek out on this stuff. We write a lot. Um, follow me on LinkedIn. Shoot me an email at Doug at MCAP.com if you have any specific questions. Um, and be on the lookout for something that's new that's coming down the pipe, which is called Doug on Demand. So um, one of the things you were kind of alluding to is the fact that I've got this like just this just this cesspool, if you will, of knowledge in the back of my head. Not a cesspool. <laughs> Cesspools are bad. <laughs> I know, I know, but it, it gets real foggy up there when I got too much. Um, <laughs> Um, but one of the things I'm going to actually start doing is, is sharing my thoughts in this, uh, with, uh, uh, on this site called dugondemand.com. So that, that'll be coming. I'll let you know about that. Well, we'll for sure push that out to all of our listeners as well. And Doug, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for what you've done for our profession. Thank you so much for joining us with our listeners today. He is my ambassador of Quan. He will show you <laughs> how to show people the money. His name is Doug Landis. He's the growth partner at Emergence Capital. Doug, thank you so much for joining us, and happy selling, my man. Happy selling to you. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast, where we break down the interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? I love Doug Landis, and I hope you really, really got a lot of great stuff from him today. I don't have to build him up. You know, his resume speaks for itself helping build organizations at Oracle and Google and Salesforce and Box. You know, those are iconic companies. And if that doesn't speak loud enough, his own voice and the depth that he had, I hope did. You know, it's really clear that Doug can go really deep in a lot of places. And we talk about this show being something that helps sales leaders not only get into high growth mode, but stay there. Well, Doug's whole job, his whole purpose at Emergence Capital is to help build the next, you know, series of billion dollar companies. Not one or two. They, they're looking to build as many as they can and they've already had a killer track record. Go to Emergence Capital's website and look at all the billion dollar companies that have come through there and that should give you reason enough to really pay attention to what Doug's talking about. And I could go through all the things that he talked about. He had killer, killer things around prioritizing where you hire and and really how you figure out what your true process is. And I loved when he started to share what his dig-in points were because that's where it got really interesting to me. And there's two things that really, really scream at me from my interview with Doug. The first was, whose voice are you using? Too often, salespeople are speaking in the voice that they think the company wants to say or they're using the voice of what they're most comfortable with. I think that if we could just leave this interview and say we are committed to speaking with the voice of our customer and we're going to build into our leadership process ways to make sure that we are in alignment, not just in alignment with the market, but it's their voice talking to our prospects. I thought it was killer how he shared 
ways to be relevant and and have um, credibility with prospects immediately just by using their voice and referring to your customers because honestly, that is your biggest competitive advantage is the customers you have because those customers picked you and not somebody else. But it's the idea of operationalizing playbooks that I think really is going to be the thing that helps the most people. And, And he has a killer five sections, consistency of language, strategy of the sales stage, sales skills of the sales stage, milestones, and by that we're talking about entrance and exit criteria, and then the tools and resources for each stage. And when you ask Doug what are the hardest things to get right as a sales leader, he very quickly said two things. Identifying the the verifiers, what are they? How do I know from a customer if we really have earned the right to advance to the next stage? And the second one is how do you operationalize that playbook? Which, again, brings us back to where every great leader has brought us. The one-on-one is the thing. Can you have one-on-one meetings where you don't just say work harder, but you can be so relevant, you can set goals to do activities that are purpose-driven to engineer verifiers that allows you to move forward? I found that when I work with organizations and we work with leaders that do that, and those sales leaders have those kind of one-on-ones, win rates go up by double digits and cycle time comes down by double digits. It's a killer, killer combo that if you can get that right, it makes it so the one-on-one is not a drudgery. It's not a micromanagement. It's a way to make sure that you have this operationalized playbook across the the company. So I hope that that was helpful. I thought that that was exciting. I thought that that was meaningful. I would tell you, listen to this interview more than once. Write down notes. It was pure freaking gold. Okay, uh, Doug has this abundant mentality, and he is happy to help sales leaders that are wherever they are in their journey. One of the things that makes him great is his willingness to help people who really want to become great at sales, particularly sales leadership. Uh, I would I would recommend reaching out to him. He'll he'll accept your reach outs. Uh, he made it very clear he's got resources he's happy to share. I would tell you, get his hiring model and get his How to Hire a VP of Sales playbook. If you want me to help you get that, reach out to me, rob at xvoyant.com, and I'm happy uh, to help you with it. Otherwise, reach out to Doug, and he said he'll make it available to all the listeners. I hope that this was a great episode for you. Uh, as always, we appreciate your feedback. We appreciate uh the, the things that you're saying about the, pro, the podcast on the podcast sites, keep sharing those positive feedbacks and make it easier for people to find us. I wish you happy holidays as we're now entering the holiday time. I hope you have the next few weeks of killer selling. And just as important, I hope you are planning right now to make the voice of your customer the voice that you go forward with in 2019. And as always, I'll wish you happy selling, don't worry, and we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exployant, the modern sales leadership platform for salesforce.com users. You can visit Exvoyant at exvoyant.com.